Hello, this is Jock. This is Jock speaking with another episode of Becoming Jock. Today, a little bit about my trip to Israel that turned my life around. A little bit about angry women and uh, how I relate to such. (laughs) So, I'll just let it go down. Hello there. Jock speaking with another episode of Becoming Jock. In the last episode, I, I, I was all over the place. I was speaking about where I was born and and uh, about how I tend to change my mind a lot. That's still the case. It's still the case where I was born, for sure. But uh, changing my mind a lot, that's still the case as well. And today I'm hoping to come up with some good ideas to talk about, which I find to be useful for people trying to find out who they are. Not only for people trying to find out who they are, but for me trying to find out who I am, because I darned well don't know, still don't know. And I'm on the the quest to find out who I am. And you know, in, in a Calvinist situation, in a Calvinist country, which the Netherlands is where I live, and where great swathes of Scotland, where I'm from, is, people might say, who the heck do you think you are that you can have a podcast about finding yourself. Are you so special? Well, I am. I am special, just as everyone listening to this is too. You're all special. And you know, it's just a... a sh- Calvinism has got so many good things in it. It's a... Uh, it, it, it's a, a theory or a, or a way of life or... Uh, which teaches people to be good. There can't be anything wrong with that. Be good, be honest, be hardworking. Uh, go to bed at, on time. Don't drink too much. Uh, be a good person, etc., etc., etc. Now, people might be thinking, what on, what on earth could be wrong with that? And yet, <laughs> there really is something wrong with other parts of the uh, the Calvinist way of thinking, in, in my opinion. And uh, with all respect to any listeners who adhere to the Calvinist way of life, I find it to be like a wet blanket covering parts of society. And in the Netherlands, where I live, people who are uh, uh, atheists... They don't believe in God at all. They think, uh, how could I ever be a Calvinist? How could I be Calvinist in my way of doing and thinking? I'm an atheist. It's not possible. Well, yeah, it is possible. Just as it's possible to be 
in in the culture of a country, to be in the culture of a country, uh, it's possible, generally speaking, to be Calvinistic in your outlook in life. I know many people who are, and one of them, one of the ways that you can detect it is what I said at the start. Who do you think you are to have a podcast about looking for yourself? Why don't you just shut up and go and work and stop your nonsense? That's basically what they're saying. And I come across it all the time. You know, all all the time I come across people saying, oh, listen to him thinking that he's a great person. Oh, look at him. If people end their emails or letters with the titles which they have been given from their university study, some people react, oh, look at him. He has to put his title at the end. Who does he think he is or she think that she is? That's Calvinism, basically. It's putting you down. Keep down. Keep your head down. And if you can compare yourself to the sheaths of barley in a field, be all the same size. Don't get above it. Don't get above the field of barley or you'll get chopped off and down to the same size as all the others. Because who do you think that you are? Well, I think that I am Jock Shaw. That's who I think I am. And I am special. The reason I'm special is that I'm a human being on this earth. And that gives me the right to want to self-inspect, uh, introspection. It gives me the right to uh, examine the world around me and how I relate to it. And it also gives me the right to share my thoughts on all of this in the hope that other people might uh, find out something that they relate to as well in it. Now, uh, the last episode I spoke of how I had to leave Scotland, as in not having to, I wasn't forced, nobody did at gunpoint or knife point or threatening me with, with, with violence, no, no. I left. Uh, the, didn't leave Scot all of Scotland because I'd actually just left the town that I was born in, and not only then that, but the area because of the violence. It was just was too much. Couldn't take it anymore, and I was actually. Uh, I, I'm still a scary cat, <clears throat> you know. When violence flares up, I would prepare. I would prefer to just turn around and walk away. You know, there's no reason for it. And, you know, I worked for many years in the prison service and I saw violence. And sometimes you can't walk away. I, I, I get that part too. I got trained even in the, in the, the use of, uh, of force when I was working in the prison service. But uh, I always hated it, never enjoyed it. That macho colleagues that actually hoped that it would happen. They liked it. But uh, not many, I must admit, not many, but a few, a few. And... Uh, they kind of made me wonder, what on earth? Just as I said that people might be wondering, who on earth do you think you are? I'm thinking, what on earth motivates you to want someone to burst into violence so that you can actually get stuck in? And I I come to the conclusion of, or come, I came to the, in the past sense, because I've been away for a long, long time from that work, 
I came to the conclusion that much of it was acting out, that they had something, an anger within themselves, these like, like prison guards or prison wardens. They had, they had something within themselves that they were angry about. And then when violence arose, they delighted in it because it gave them the excuse to burst out and use violence themselves as an acting out about the other thing that they were worried about or worried, the other thing that bugged them, the other thing that was angering them, maybe in the family, maybe they were rejected as children, maybe they were pressed down. I don't know. Acting out, it's an awful thing when you see it happen. An awful thing. Now, back to the chronology of of my story. This had had a reason to tell you all this. Because of the uh, the Calvinist thing, uh, who do you think you are? I heard it just last week. Who do you think you are? A podcast about Jock? What's so special about him? Why don't you talk about something worthwhile instead of just yourself, you small man? So, the uh, I just thought I would get that out there. <laughs> the... Um, so the chronology, so I left Scotland altogether, left Paisley and I, I mentioned Amsterdam where I, I didn't get into trouble in Amsterdam, not at all. The, uh, I personally got into trouble, but not, didn't get into trouble with the authorities, not, not anything like that. But uh, I got into terrible bother with uh, uh, substance abuse and uh, couldn't get away from it. And I bought a single ticket to Israel and uh, when I arrived in Israel, oh... You've no idea, you know, my life just started to change. Not instantly, of course, but uh, I remember the warmth in Tel Aviv, the literal warmth, and then going into the youth hostel. Tel Aviv was not like it is now. If you look at Tel Aviv now, from the viewpoint of the old city of Jaffa, it looks like almost like an American city from from afar, like, you know, with these skylines. It's... uh, it's got big, not maybe not much sky. Yeah, it does have big skyscrapers, a couple, and the rest of it very tall buildings as well. So you can actually see it, and it looks very modern and such like. So it wasn't like that when I was there. It was very, very. Uh, there was very low buildings and these white Bauhaus type of buildings, lots of them. And I went to a youth hostel, and I actually had. Uh, um, withdrawal symptoms at the time and hardly anybody noticed it I told people I had the flu I told them that I had the flu and they believed me, people believed me they were actually looking after me People, there was an, an older lady who was uh, cleaning in the hostel and uh, she was making soup for me and said oh come on son get up out of bed, go and have a shower you'll be alright after that, have, a, have some soup you know really 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 nice you know, the exact opposite of popular opinion these days of Israel. The exact opposite. You know, it was, uh, there was absolutely no reason to to believe that, that there was anything wrong with the country at all. Not like today. Uh, I still don't think there's much wrong with the country at all today. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, I think that Israel is a wonderful place and I really love it. 
and I felt so much love there that it changed my whole life. And uh, one of the things was, I think I said in the the previous episode, I had an aunt at home who was kind of like a feeder who uh, kept me bound to her. You were the son I never had and always told me of how I could never pass uh, an exam. Uh, not not so much a, a, an exam, but the, a, a medical examination. You could never pass it. You're too ill. You're sickly. You're ill. And it kind of worked its way into me. I don't know if any of you have ever read Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, or maybe watched the movie. In the movie, it's less evident. But in the in the book, it's it's much more so that the king of uh, of the the riders, you know, the the the, the kingdom of of horse riders, which name has escaped me just now. They had a king who was sitting on his throne, his head bowed, long hair hanging lank over his face, and this advisor next to him, who was called in the kingdom the Worm Tongue, the person who whispered into his ear that he was really in a bad place and he had no what he wouldn't he wasn't coming forward and he wasn't good enough and wasn't strong and uh, his kingdom was at threat he could never stand up against the enemy and uh, Rohan now the name just came back to me the riders of Rohan so he was told he could never overcome the enemy and then comes Gandalf the wizard and he uh, puts Wormtongue into his place and uh, suddenly the king, the old king straightens up and his, his shoulders go back and his chest comes out and you can see the pride of this king of the, the kingdom of Rohan, of horse riders, the horse kingdom of Rohan and he takes his place. Maybe that's a bit exaggerated if I would put that, if I would say that that happened. It was something like that that happened to me, but it, it was kind of like that. I, I, this aunt who told me all the time I was ill. You could never pass a medical. Don't even bother going. You'll you'll fail. You'll never pass a medical from child right up until oh, till I was about eighteen. You know, he, just hearing that often. So I believed it. I thought that was the case. I thought that was the case. And so uh, in Israel, what turned me around was uh, after, uh, you know, I told, I went to the key, well, first Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. And then I actually went through my withdrawal symptoms in a few days. And um, I felt such love, even in the youth hostel, you know, such love and People, you know, would talk to you. and Old people would talk to me, people with tattooed, numbers tattooed on their arms. It's really touched me, uh, talking to me in the street. And uh, are you enjoying it here? What's your, don't you think this is wonderful? We have our own country at last. They're still trying to kill us, but we have strong young sons now. And... Um, I understand that many people who get, in my opinion at least, maybe a one-sided view of Israel. They get, you know, they they get it uh, forked out to them from the news, news sites, 
like CNN or the BBC or the Dutch NOS. You know, it's just uh, the same thing over and over and over and over again. The same as my aunt telling me, you're too small, you're too young, you're too weak, you're too sickly. That same thing going over and over and over again, ingraining itself into people's brains. Israel, the bad guy. Israel is the bad guy. And everybody, of course, wants to stick up for the uh, the underdog. And so if the Palestinian people get projected as being the underdog, then people think, oh, come on, leave them alone. That's a shame. Come on. And, you know, as if leave them alone, as if Israel is... Uh, deliberately out to do something. There are people that I have met who actually believe with all of their hearts that Israel has a policy of going out and murdering Palestinian children. Well, I can only tell you, go there one day. Go there. Just go there. Take Hire a car, drive around, talk to people. And you'll find out that that's not true. It's absolutely not the case. And, uh, you know, the whole part about, you know, areas, does this belong to, to, to Y, does this belong to X, does this belong to A, does this belong to B? That's not really my business. And it's not my business to to uh, call it out or to uh, to justify or to or to, yeah, do the opposite. I'm. I don't. I'm not doing that. I'm not into that. I just went to that country and experienced such love. So, after Tel Aviv and after uh, going around the city and going to the beach there and got to know some really cool people, really nice folk, and um, I took the bus uh, from the bus station of of Tel Aviv. Uh, uh, Tel Aviv being such a young city. And the bus to to Jerusalem. Now the bus to Jerusalem now today is about forty minutes, but back then it was about an hour and twenty minutes. So I took the. It's an hour and twenty minutes from Tel Aviv, and you go from uh, now in any anyway from to to twenty twenty one right back to fourth uh, three thousand BCE, something like that. You know, it's. Uh, it's it's a very 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 old city, and the, some of the areas still still live in a very very old fashioned way. So I went to Jerusalem, and again I went up to the youth hostel, the international youth hostel, and I met these really nice people, ni- nice Jewish boys from from America. And uh, one of them said, "You know, it's, it's Shabbat, it's uh, Friday, and um, I have an invite to go to this." Uh, uh, the shul, which has a yeshiva next to it. Uh, it's a shul is a synagogue with a yeshiva, which is a, a Jewish school of learning next to it. They're celebrating Shabbat, and I have had an invite to go there. Would you like to come along? So, yeah, sure, I went. And uh, the uh, the service was was amazing. You know, it was uh, it was orthodox, but not ultra, ultra-orthodox. It was, uh, it was kind of... It, it wasn't liberal either. It was just kind of in between just regular orthodox, let, let me put it that way, regular orthodox, but not ultra, ultra, 
And the rabbi was like a comedian. He was really funny. I can't even remember it, what, he, what he spoke of, but he spoke really... Uh, he had us all laughing. And uh, they drank vodka in the uh, in the synagogue, <laughs> which... Uh, which surprised me somewhat, and uh, the singing was absolutely amazing. The food was to die. The food was great, so we had uh, really nice food, and uh, there was pickles, which I, I just love pickles. And uh, people were hammering on the table with their fists and singing, and it's absolutely wonderful. And afterwards, I went out feeling elated, feeling wow, this is this is something. I feel part of this somehow and went over to the Western Wall, which is sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall, which is a wrong reference. It's the Western Wall. Uh, I went to and uh, met people who were so passionate about uh, the, the thousands of years of Jewish presence within the city of Jerusalem, except for the years 1948, right up until 1967, the only part in, in a 4,000 year of Jewish presence was that 20 years, that uh, or, or 19 years, when the Jewish people were driven uh, from the Jewish quarter in old Jerusalem, their houses destroyed, and that uh, Jordanian snipers would just uh, take pot shots at... Uh, at, at civilians in West Jerusalem, which is Israel proper, they would take pot shots at them for kicks, women hanging their washing up, things like that. And I know many of you could probably give me a, a, an instance of where things happened the other way around. But um, I, I, this is the way I see it just now. This is the way I've come across it. And uh, the opposite... Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that on a grand scale, at least, that uh, the Israeli soldiers would take pot shots at civilians for kicks. No, no. So there I was, and I decided, well, I'm going to stay here for a while, and I wanted to go to a kibbutz. So took the bus back to Tel Aviv and did something which had me shaking my knees were quivering. I, I went to a, to have a medical examination to see if I was fit to work in a kibbutz. And so the doctor examined me and spoke to me and asked me what my thoughts were on the Zionist, uh, uh, on uh, on Zionism and such like. And so he, uh, he, he after his, exa his medical exam, his physical medical examination, he decided. Well, you're you're fit to work. Why not? So, um, okay, I, I I was he showed me the map of Israel and he said there's a place up here, up in the north. Showed me a, a pin on the map. They're needing people just now. It's called Kfar Blum. Would you like to go there? I said yes. Yeah, why not? Sure. So there was this other guy who was uh, going there too. So we took the the bus up together. And as we went uh, up, we passed through the Judean hills and through the lower Galilee and uh, past Nazareth and way up, right up to the north. And uh, at Kiryat Shmona, we got out of the bus and took another bus 
to Farbloom. We had to wait in the bus to Farbloom. There was only one an hour or something that went there. And there was a gate, and uh, as we got to the gate, we showed them our papers that we had uh, been taken on as volunteers. I remember it being amazing, and uh, <clears throat> I was very nervous. And I was told the place where I was going to work was the there was there was a fish farm, and they had these big ponds with fish in it. One of the fish was called Cassif, I remember. It was silver-coloured fish, which uh, which was like a salmon in a way, but it was farmed. And uh, they would pull the fish in by nets, just like you know, like in bi- biblical times, you know, like you would put the net out in a circle and then two men would pull it in and the nets would be full of fish and uh, they would scoop these fish up into a this big uh, container which went up onto the back of a an even larger container which was attached to a tractor. Anyway, one day one of the guys said, Joke, take take what the side of one of the nets, take this part of the net. And I said, oh, come on, I can't. It's too heavy for me. I can't do anything like that. And he said, who, who told you, actually? Which person told you that you're not strong enough to do whatever you want? You are. Come on. Take the net. Come on. So I started pulling the net. And at first it was really easy, but as it... As the fish were beginning gathered, were being gathered in, of course, it was uh, getting heavier and heavier. And all the kibbutzniks around me, they, uh, they were clapping their hands and, and shouting in unison, Yaakov, Yaakov, pull, 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 pull. And as I pulled, they called me Yaakov. As I pulled, I felt the strength returning to my arms and I was pulling it in. And then came the part... When you when there was no more pulling because the net was totally taut around the fish and we started scooping them out and I remember the feeling of elation that I had that I had done something which uh, made me feel really good about myself. So that's that was my turning point. I remember that very instant. Uh, that that was my turning point in life. That there was something that I could do and uh, it wasn't true that I couldn't do anything I ended up doing lots of things I ended up getting a degree and uh, things that I never thought I could do but I, I remember I, I managed a lot in my life even then I still don't know where I am or where I am I know where I am I'm in, I'm in my little room where I do my podcast but uh, I don't know who I am the last time I said one meter sixty six, and I said I would find out what that is. Well, I've looked it up. It's five foot five, five foot five inches. Now maybe some people might hear that and think that's not all that small. But if you're in the Netherlands, it's small. You know the giants live here, and you know the uh, they they won't let me forget that I'm small. The Dutch people. Now I'm generalising. I know it's a bad thing to generalise, but still, I uh, I can't help it. It's uh, it's a th- it's something that I I come about and something that I tend to to notice. They say uh, joke or favourite. My 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 job is in the whiskey industry, so my little my favourite little whiskey gnome 
and uh, couldn't you come to our garden with a with a pointed hat and a bottle of whiskey, you know, things like that. It's kind of what they feel is humour, and uh, so um, yeah, humour schmoomer, really not. So anyway, that's uh, that was uh, that was that that's that was me ended up here. Uh, oh wow, I didn't tell you why. Yeah, I met this Dutch girl in Israel on the kibbutz, and. Uh, I remember seeing her walking into the dining room, a, a volunteer, and my heart missed a beat. I thought, goodness me, look at that pretty girl. And uh, she sat at the table just across from me, the, the same table, but the chair across. And I was too shy to even look at her, and then we got into a conversation, and the uh, I thought, ah, she doesn't see me, come on. But we ended up together, and we're now married for 44 years, so... Amazing, eh? How life can turn out. So that's that was that part of my life. I ended up in the Netherlands after, and we've got four children and six grandchildren at the moment, six and counting. Not a seventh on the way, as far as I know, but uh, six at the moment, anyway. And you know, uh, there's something else. What happened to me in my in the process of growing up and getting older. I understand now a part of uh, Bob Dylan's song, My Back Pages, it's called. And at the end of each verse, he says, Ah, but I was so much older then, and I'm younger than that now. And I understand that now. I used to think that it was just a sort of phony way of trying to be arty by putting in such a, a line. I was so much older then, and I'm younger than that now. I get it. I totally and utterly get it. I used to be a really old person, and even though I'm mid-60s now, I'm younger than that now. How can that be possible? I used to make a big deal out of stuff which is actually no deal at all, like an old fart. And now, you know, I can really see how relative things are. So that's part of me becoming me. I used to be so much older, and I'm younger than that now. Now... I'll, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'll, I'll have a, a go at it. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to quote someone else's song. Uh, maybe speaking it is allowed and just not playing it isn't allowed. Don't know. But here we go. He's, he's in the middle of it uh, from that, that beautiful song, My Back Pages, one of my favourites of Bob Dylan. And uh, girls' faces formed the forward path. From phony jealousy to memorizing politics of ancient history, flung down by corpse evangelists, unthought or though somehow, ah, but I was so much older then, and I'm younger than that now. Thank you. 
you got it. I hope you understood it. I hope you knew where I was coming from. And I hope you know where I'm going. But most of all, I hope we can go together. And that in finding out who I am, you'll find out who you are too. So until the next time, fare thee well.